0: Grab your seats, grab your coffee, donut. we're going to get cracking. This morning we're going to carry on a series that we started looking at a couple of weeks ago, looking at the book of Nehemiah. So if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. The words will come up on the screen, it's not the easiest book in the world to find, so uh, feel free to use the index or the contents. Now, we've already had a look at at Nehemiah chapter 1, which is why we're doing Nehemiah chapter 2. Just to give you a little bit of context, it's 445 BC, and the people of God, God's people, are living uh, in exile in the Persian uh, Empire. They've been in exile for so long, in fact, that Nehemiah has never actually lived in his home city of Jerusalem, but in spite of being in exile, Nehemiah has actually done pretty well for himself. He is cupbearer to Artaxerxes, who is the ruler of the entire Persian Empire. Um, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Nehemiah chapter 1. And uh, Nehemiah is uh, going about his own business. He's in Susa. Uh, and uh, he hears this report of uh, what's... Uh, been going on he hears about this report about what's been going on uh, with the Jews who are the small number the small remnant of Jews who are still living in Jerusalem after the exile and he hears about the the, the terrible state that they're in um, he hears about the, the the devastation and the havoc that has been wreaked on the city of Jerusalem how their houses and their homes have been destroyed uh, the walls of the city have been broken down, so there's no safety, there's no security, there's no protection for the few that are remaining. Uh, uh, splendid buildings have been raised to the ground. And, and he hears all of this, and when he hears about all of this, Nehemiah begins to weep. He begins to weep and he begins to cry out to God in prayer. And, and as he cries out to God for change, uh, to come to Jerusalem, um, he, he's, reminded of, he's reminded of God's promises over Jerusalem and as he cries out to God and as he prays he he actually prays back some of those promises uh, you see it in chapter 1 verse 9 where God has promised that he would uh, bring his people back that he would gather his people back um, to the city of Jerusalem again and that he would restore it to its former glory this morning we're going to pick up the story in Nehemiah chapter 2 let's start with verses 1 to 8 in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I'd not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad When the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you come back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I also have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates, so that they will provide me with safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And... May I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal parks, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would open up your word to us, that you would speak to us, that you would... um, transform us with ever-increasing glory into the image through the scriptures this morning I ask in Jesus' name, Amen I don't know about you uh, but the Christian life often uh, seems to be filled with what you might call an endless array of um, competing creative tensions Um, Colossians 3 verse uh, 13 I think it is says uh, we're forgiven great And yet in 1 John 1, 9, it says uh, that we need to keep confessing our sin. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17, Paul writes, that you're a new creation. And then in Romans 6, verse 6, he says how we are to battle with the old self. Uh, Again, in Romans 6, uh, Paul tells us that we have been set free uh, from sin. So we are free. And in the same verse, in the the same chapter, almost in the same verse, he says, um, you are now slaves. Slaves to righteousness and slaves of of God. And and so there's this list of tensions that uh, we walk in and uh, we walk through. And if if we're honest, it it, it can be pretty confusing. It can be pretty confusing because these tensions are very real. Um, but far from overwhelming us, these things that we um, hold in tension are actually pointers. They're actually signposts to the fact that we are but pilgrims on the journey of faith. They, they, they're pointers and indicators to the fact that we are strangers in a strange land with our hearts set on heaven. We, we, we find ourselves um, caught. In, in what we call in, in the in-between, if you like, what, what we sometimes call the, the now and the, the not yet. We're sort of in this world, but not of this world. Uh, but it can be a real challenge. It can be a real challenge learning how to walk through these tensions that we face all the time. And in this chapter, Nehemiah, I think he demonstrates perfectly how to balance one of the major tensions that we grapple with and wrestle with that we face as Christians and that's the, the, the tension between the sovereignty of God on the one hand and human responsibility on the other. This tension that we walk in between knowing that God is in charge but at the same time knowing that what we do matters. Uh, Describing this chapter, one commentator writes this. They say it's a fine illustration of the balance between confidence in the sovereignty of God with prayer as its proper response and human responsibility with its counterpart in thoughtful planning. You see, because there isn't this um, solid brick wall kind of dividing line that exists between. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Um, There's a a tension uh, to be held. There's a a balance to be struck. There's there's no solid impenetrable brick wall dividing line between sort of considered and careful planning on the one hand and praying for God's wisdom on the other. There's no solid wall um, dividing and separating, um, working hard. And at the same time waiting for God to act. It, it's, it's much more of a spectrum. It's much grayer than this black and white. It, it, it's much more of a spectrum than a solid wall. Because as we see from this text. God can bring wisdom to bear. Um, even in the midst of all of our careful planning. God can intervene and act. Even while we're working hard to try and make a difference. You see, because ultimately God is in charge, but what we do matters. One of the ways I think that Nehemiah demonstrates this really well is just is by how he waits on God for God's perfect timing. Um, do you see at the beginning of the chapter that we've just read, it starts with this really detailed sort of a practical note about timings. Verse 1, it says this, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought to him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. Now, if, uh, if like me, you're a bit uh, rusty on your Hebrew calendar, uh, what this actually means is that it's four, four months later. Uh, it's four months after the chapter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Four months have gone by since uh, the end of chapter one, which is when Nehemiah first heard about these reports coming in about the condition in the state that Jerusalem was in. Do you see how Nehemiah doesn't rush? Do you see how Nehemiah, he he doesn't do anything in haste. As soon as he hears the news from Jerusalem, he doesn't just like rush into the king and kind of go, Oh my Lord, this is terrible. I must tell the king. Legs it into the throne room. Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes. I've just heard about Jerusalem. Let me go and fix it and sort it out. He doesn't do that. He could have done it. He's cupbearer to the king. He doesn't do that. Nehemiah knew that it was important um, to get God's timing right, to get the timing right and to wait for God's perfect timing. Time and time again, we, we think we hear from God, don't we? we? We think we hear from God. And the next thing that we know is that it's all done and dusted. I heard from God, I've sorted it. I, I, I heard from the Lord and I've, I've done it for him. He'll be so grateful. You know, and we've so, suddenly we've changed our jobs or we've moved house or whatever it, whatever it is. You know, and I think the Lord's like sitting there going, you know, slow down. You, you move too fast. You've got to let the morning last. I think there could be a song in there. I had no idea. It just came to me as I was preparing. I seriously think that's the way to, you know, God's feeling groovy. I mean, I just, throw it out there. I don't know if that's theological, but Isaiah 52 says this. You will not go out in haste, nor will you go as fugitives, for the Lord your God will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And we're like, what? Wait. Wait. Like, patience. My goodness. You know, God has spoken. I heard him distinctly, and I have to act now. Now! no, no. no. And the Lord's like, mm, maybe, but maybe we should just take a little pause and just make sure that we've got our timings right. Just because I've revealed to you my plans and my purposes doesn't necessarily mean that it all has to be done today. So Nehemiah waits. But it's interesting, it's not like he does nothing. It's not like he doesn't do anything while he's waiting on the Lord. Nehemiah busies himself. Uh, Nehemiah prays. And not only does he pray, but he He plans. And in and through it all, I think the Lord is, um, is actually teaching Nehemiah patience. Nehemiah is waiting for God to act. Nehemiah is waiting for God's perfect timing. He's waiting for the Lord to lead him out. He's waiting for the Lord to go before him. And, and so through his praying and through his planning, Nehemiah is this great example of how we hold intention. this thing between the sovereignty of God and our responsibility. And the first thing is through prayer. I mean, right throughout the book of Nehemiah, we see that Nehemiah is a man of prayer. Again and again and again, we see him turning to God in prayer. And we'll see this time and time again throughout the book over the next few weeks. And and I've got no doubt that he spent much of the preceding four months on his knees in prayer, crying out to God, asking God for wisdom as to when to approach the king, asking God for wisdom as to how to approach The king crying out to God to bring change, thinking through uh, what it might look like, crying out to God, praying to God. And even when the opportunity for him, uh, the opportunity comes for him to speak to the king. Do you see how he even in that moment he cries out to God again? He prays again. We read in verse four. The king said to me, what is it you want? And it's like, then I pray to the Lord. It's like, oh God, oh God, oh God, oh God, like the king's, now, now is the right moment. The king is asking me, it's like, God, I need your help. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king. So even in the moment, he still uh, prays again, recognizing his desperation, his need for God. Nehemiah knows that God is in charge, but he knows that in that moment, he desperately needs help from the spirit of the living God, and um and for Nehemiah, prayer wasn't just kind of some form of procrastination. It's like, actually, I don't feel like doing anything, so I'll just pray about it. You know, and it's like some excuse to go off and hide in a corner and really do nothing. It wasn't an excuse for passivity. It wasn't an excuse for inaction. It went side by side with his planning and his um, readiness, get things, his getting things ready. Because he's, Nehemiah's a man out of action as well. He, he was... Um, Focused on planning. He he had thought about all the things that needed to be done. So that when the king asks him questions. Nehemiah's more than ready to give him the answers. He's thought about how long it's going to take to rebuild the city. That's no small calculation. That's not something you just go. Oh I, I don't know, It's like weeks' work. I don't know. I've never rebuilt a city before. He thought through what they were going to need for the job. So that. Uh, he knew that he was going to have to ask for wood from the forest. And uh, so he'd also found out that the keeper of the forest is is Asaph, and he's going to have to get a letter from the king to get the wood from Asaph so that he can go and do the things that he needs to do. So he can build his gates and build the citadel and build his house. He knew the resources that he was going to need. He'd prayed um, and he'd planned. And alongside it all, he'd he'd carried on doing his job as cupbearer to the king. So it's not like he... Had this call from God to go and rebuild the walls, and he just chucked in his job and went off and said, I now need to just focus all my time and energy praying and planning. He has to do that bivocationally. So he has to pray and plan and carry on serving wine to the king. He has to carry on being cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah knew that uh, God was in charge, but that uh, what he did matters. Perhaps for some of us, there's some lessons to be learned here. How are we doing walking out some of these um, tensions? Perhaps you're here and you're looking for God's direction in your life at the moment, or you're seeking him as to what to do next, or maybe you're waiting for God to answer prayer for something that you have been praying for for years. Uh, One way that we can deal with this is that we can hide ourselves away, we can think that God has forsaken us. He's abandoned us. He's not going to come through on his promises. And so we withdraw. We withdraw from God. We withdraw from God's people. We withdraw from getting counsel from God. We withdraw from getting counsel from God's people. And it becomes incredibly difficult for the Lord actually to speak to us and to break through to us because we've retreated. On the other hand, we can tend to go to the other extreme and and we do everything within our power to make uh, what we think the Lord has said come to pass. And so we do everything in our own strength. We sort of say to ourselves, well, like, it doesn't look like God's going to get to it. Because, it, I mean, I understand he's busy. Um, so I'll just I'll fix it. It's the same outcome. Because it's what God really wanted. All of this is something that we need to balance up. And I, I think it shows great maturity um, to live life walking in these two tensions. To keep on keeping on being faithful in the moment to what God is calling to us to now even if we have a sense that there's something else that God might be calling us to in the future. Finding ways to faithfully keep praying and to faithfully keep seeking God's face and God's direction for our lives and all at the same time planning for our future as well. Nehemiah is a a great example of this. Let's have a look at the next uh, bit of the chapter. Verse 9. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. Uh, when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite, official, heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts, uh, horses, or donkeys with me, except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gates toward the jackal wall, and the Dung Gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the Fountain Gate and the King's Pool, but there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials didn't know where I'd gone or what I was doing, because... As, yet, I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or the nobles or the officials or any others who would be doing the work. Uh, Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. And we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God on me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when at the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you... You have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Let us start rebuilding. Verse 18. There comes a point in every project, whatever it is that you're facing, where you've actually got to get to work and start building. And and Nehemiah shows incredibly impressive visionary leadership as he casts the vision to those remaining in Jerusalem. These people who, by all accounts, are uh, very disillusioned downtrodden people and he encourages them and exhorts them saying, God is with us. God is with you. And he uses the story of how his encounter with the king and how the king had shown him favor. uh, And he said, because of this, this is an example, an indicator of the fact that the God of heaven and earth is with us. And what wants us to prosper. And one of the things that's so incredible and wonderful about this uh, passage is Nehemiah, you've got to remember, Nehemiah lived well before the coming of Christ. Um, but there are within this whole uh, story, this whole passage, this text that we're looking at, some incredible parallels and pointers to the person of Jesus. The whole Bible, we know the whole Bible, points towards Jesus. That's why we would encourage everyone just to, just to spend time reading it, because it all points towards Jesus. Um, but the story of Nehemiah Particularly is one that essentially goes from ruin to renewal. Uh, The renewal that we see in Jerusalem of God's people in this story. What it does is it points to um, the greater renewal that comes through Jesus Christ. And all that he accomplished through his death and resurrection. Even right here, even in this chapter, even in chapter 2. There are some incredible pointers, some indicators, some foretastes to the wider story. Nehemiah is with the king. He is in the safety and the luxury of the palace. Jesus was in heaven. Jesus was in heaven in the sanctuary of being, uh, in the Father's presence. Nehemiah waits patiently for the right time. Jesus waited 30 years before starting his public ministry. And Nehemiah takes these courageous risks for God. Jesus... (laughs) paid the ultimate price by giving his life uh, for us so that we could know God the Father intimately. Nehemiah calls his followers to build the city of God. Jesus calls his followers to lay down their lives and build the church and build a society to the glory of God. So Nehemiah brings about renewal from ruin that points towards the greater renewal that Jesus will bring. And the city Nehemiah was building points to the bigger city that Jesus is building. The church. In Matthew um, 16 verse 18 Jesus said I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In Ephesians five twenty five, it says Christ so loved the church that he gave himself up for her. Jesus promised to build his church and and, um, there's an encouragement, there's an exhortation in here for all of us to join with him in building um, the church, in building this small, very small corner of the church, the global church, the Southwest London Vineyard. One of the things that God longs for is to give us all a, a meaningful part to play in building his church and in establishing his kingdom. Uh, Tim Keller writes about this passage. He says this Keep in mind that we're not building walls as a church to keep other people out, you know, so that we're separated. That's not the point. What he says is, no, 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 we're building walls of safety. We're bringing people into the city, we're bringing people into citizenship. The gates. Are open. Last week, uh, as Kate was talking about uh, the church, she was um, reminding us that here at Southwest Ontario, we're we're called to be a church with no walls. We're, we're called to be a church with no ceiling either. Um, and what that means is that we're we're wanting the the gates. Do you see? We've, what that means is we want people to just anybody and everybody to be able to come in come in come in see what's going on transparency openness let everybody come in come in come in all who are thirsty all who are weak come to the fountain come to the river that's flowing through the center of the church the gates are open we're open for business so that anyone can come in to explore more about Jesus, whatever our states of undress, whatever, uh, however b- b- battered and bruised and brutal we feel, however worthless we feel, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what our stories. Doesn't matter where we've come from. It doesn't matter where we've been. Everybody is welcome to discover more of God's love for them. Here at Sutherland we want to be a, a church that affects a change for good to those the Lord. Um, sends us so that we can make a change for good to our city, our communities we 're building a, a church that isn 't designed just to be a, a safe sanctuary and shelter for those of us who are inside, where we can huddle away like a monastery where we can huddle away from the cruel world outside and from everything else that's going on around us we're wanting to gather as the church so that we can be empowered and equipped to go out from this place to build a society for the glory and to the glory of god as we see the kingdom of god established and extended in all the places that the lord sends us a chap called gabe lyons in his book the new christians he talks about seven they're called channels I don't like that. um, Channels or seven arenas of culture, and um, the seven are business, education, the social sector, arts and entertainment, government, media, and the church. Okay, and the principle is that these areas of cultural influence touch every area. And every citizen in society. And when leaders from each area work together towards a common goal, the argument is that cultural and social change is possible. Anyway, he writes this He says, The church remains the epicenter of what is possible, it is the most uniquely positioned channel of cultural influence when it's operating on all cylinders. No other institution regularly convenes people who work within the seven arenas of culture on a weekly basis. On any given Sunday in the church, leaders from all seven areas join together to pray, to worship, to learn and socialize all in one place. Then they're sent out, dispersed to support one another and to work within the sphere of society God has gifted And called them to. In order to carry out. The work of restoration. See as we determine to invest. Our time. Our energy and our money. Into building the church. Into building this church. This being the part of the body of Christ. That God has called us to at this point. We are choosing to build. um, Something and to invest in something. That has eternal value. Far lasting value. We're choosing to. Build something that is essentially that is the very vehicle that God has designed to bring about social and cultural transformation across not only our city, but across the entire world. The church is that vehicle of social transformation and cultural transformation. When we give ourselves to building the church, like Nehemiah, we can have confidence that God's hand is on us. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. You see, as we give ourselves to building the church, to building this church, we are not giving our lives to something that will be in vain. God cares about um, redeeming uh, souls. We know that God, but God not only cares about redeeming souls; He He He's also passionate about restoring um, His creation. He is calling us um, to be agents, you know, not only of His saving grace but also of His common grace. But to be representatives, not only of salvation but also just of God's common. Grace. Our job is to build the church. Our mandate is to build a society that reflects the glory of God. And, and as we build the church, in so doing, what happens is that uh, we transform society. And as agents of God's common grace, we're, we're called to um, to help sustain and to renew God's creation. Um, we're, we're called and we're created to. Uphold the institutions that the Lord has ordained for things like family and society. that Keep those things together. We're to to pursue uh, science and scholarship and we're to create works of art and beauty and all these things. We're to to go out and to um, heal and help those who are suffering from the, the, the consequences and the impact, the devastating impact of the fall. The call in our lives is like Nehemiah to be giving ourselves to restoration, rebuilding broken walls. And as we we do that, what we're doing is we're giving ourselves to something that has far greater significance, uh, um, far more lasting consequence than we can ever imagine and certainly reaches way beyond our mortal lives. Because whatever we're doing for the Lord, we know that it won't be in vain. It becomes our legacy, it becomes our heritage. We know that God's in charge, but we also know that what we do matters. Uh, Let's be a praying church. Let's be a planning church as together we build his church and build a society to the glory of God. Why don't you stand and we will minister?